0: Verse 30, Jesus is speaking. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me. And I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not for man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John." For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? When you receive glory from one another, and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words?" Let's pray. Father, we've gathered together. We've come in your name. We've come because we love to be together. We love the gathering of the saints, but also, Lord, because you call us together and we're here. And Father, I pray that in the midst of this gathering, in which we're singing your praises and laying our requests before you, and now turning our attention to the scriptures and Lord, turning our ears to hear from you, I pray, Father, that you would enable us and fill us with the truth. I pray for each person here, Lord, and for myself, that as we give our attention to this passage and these words of Jesus, you would illuminate us and help us to have ears, to hear and understanding, to understand what it is we need to see and what Jesus is saying here. And Father, I pray that you would not let us leave here Uh, the same that you would change us and father that for those who are still in darkness here that this would be the day they come into the light this would be the day that they understand and and turn to you lord thank you for the for the word of god and thank you that you give it to us and we don't live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from your mouth so lord do your work here we pray And we just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We began last week to look at Jesus' defense of his actions and his identity against two charges that were brought against him by the leadership of Israel, by the religious establishment in Israel. Number one... They accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath by working on the Sabbath. And then number two, on the heels of that charge, after Jesus defended himself against that charge, they charged him with making himself equal with God. To the first charge that Jesus was breaking the Sabbath by working on the Sabbath, Jesus replied by saying, God works and so I work. Meaning, if it's okay for God to work on the Sabbath, then it's okay for me to work on the Sabbath. I can work on the Sabbath like God does because of my special relationship to Him. Now, this was unheard of. The rabbis and the teachers of Israel would have conceded that God works on the Sabbath. In fact, God works all, always. God is always at work in His upholding of the universe and so forth. But no one would use that fact that God's always working as a justification for their working on the Sabbath. And so what they heard when Jesus was saying this, and they rightly heard it, is that this man is making himself equal with God. And so they brought this second charge of blasphemy. Now, if it's true what Jesus is saying, that he is equal with God, then that exempts him from all the charges. He hasn't violated the Sabbath, and he's not a blasphemer if he's truly equal with God. If Jesus, of course, is false, then he is violating the Sabbath, and worse, he's blaspheming by making himself equal with God, and yet he's not. He's a liar, or he's crazy. So all hangs upon Jesus' equality with God, whether that's true or whether that's false. All hangs upon his defense of this second charge that's brought against him. Is he a blasphemer or not? Now, as we read last week, as Jesus gives his defense of his equality with God, he offers nothing to the leaders of Israel or to Israel that would dispel their accusation that he claimed equality with God. He, he offers nothing to them that would dispel their concern. Their concern. <laughs> This man's making himself equal with God, but on the other hand, he only affirms that and even intensifies the claim. Not only am I equal with God in that I work on the Sabbath, I'm equal with God in that I raise the dead. I'm equal with God in that I judge the world. I'm equal with God in that just as you honor the Father, that is, give Him glory and attribute to Him honor and salvation and wisdom and power and all those things, so also you need to honor the Son. And he who doesn't glorify the Son doesn't glorify the Father either. So no, Jesus in no way uh, backs off. He only intensifies his equality with God. However, although Jesus doesn't back down from ascribing equality uh, with God to himself, Jesus is careful in his defense to describe what kind of equality it is. What kind of equality it is. What I mean is, the equality Jesus has with God, in his own mind and in his teaching, isn't absolute equality. What I mean by absolute equality is, Jesus is not claiming to be the Father. He's not saying, I am the Father, Jesus is not claiming to be a second God. He's not saying, you know how you believe in God and there's a God? Yeah, well, I also am a God. He's not saying that. And there's really two gods here. He's not claiming that kind of thing. So he's not claiming to be a, the Father or a second Father or a second God. There is only one God. And Jesus makes that perfectly clear. It seems like all opposition that I've ever encountered against the idea of the Trinity always is based upon a misunderstanding that the Trinity is not a monotheistic idea, right? And they oppose this idea. How can Jesus be God? That's like two gods. And they, No, no, you're not understanding what we're saying. You're not understanding what the Bible is saying. There is only one God, and we certainly affirm that. But well, what Jesus is doing is he's indicating to these people that there's more to the one God than a solitary person. There's more to the one God than a solitary person. That is, when you think of there being one God, you need to think beyond just there being a solitary person. There is, there has been, according to Jesus, and there always will be, within the one being of God, a relationship between the Father and His Son, the Father and His Word, and also the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as well. So as I was sharing last week, God is one being, but that doesn't mean he's one person. He's three persons, and it's not illogical, and it's not unlawful, but it is unfamiliar because we don't know of any being like that. Whenever we encounter beings, it's always one being, one person, right? What we learn from the Bible is that there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are distinct from one another, and yet together they are God. And the Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And here he is in John chapter 5 explaining to them that he has come from God, explaining to them his equality with God, explaining to them his distinction from the Father, and explaining to them the purpose of his coming as well. I've come to do the Father's will. I've come to reflect him. I've come to, res- to uh, imitate him and do all that he shows me to do. Whatever you see me doing you see the Father doing because I perfectly represent Him in all He says and all He does. And therefore, to see Jesus is to see the Father. To honor Jesus is to honor the Father. Brothers and sisters, to love Jesus is to love the Father. To hate Jesus is to hate the Father. And that is why what a person does with Jesus ultimately reveals who a person is and what their heart is towards God. You can't reject Jesus and say, I really love God. You know, I, I reject Jesus because that's idolatry. I'm going to stay true to who God is. Jesus, if you want to stay true to who God is, then you have to accept and embrace the Son of God who Jesus, who God sent into the world to do His will. How a person judges Jesus in this trial will determine, according to Jesus, how a person is judged in their own trial. And that's where we left off last Sunday. This morning, we're going to step back into this courtroom, for the whole chapter here is a courtroom. It's a courtroom drama. And we're going to continue examining this trial of the ages, this timeless trial that's relevant for every single one of us here. And we're going to continue right where we left off. And there's so much to say, truly, in this section that we read That I think this morning's sermon will be just slightly longer than usual. So I ask you to please bear with me. Just prepare yourself for it, okay? Good, I'm glad you're eager. We're gonna look at three things. I'm gonna divide this sermon up into three sections as we look at this passage. So, number one, we're going to talk about the role of witnesses in the Bible. The role of witnesses in the Bible. Number two, Alan will need coffee to get through this. (laughs) Number two, we're going to look at the witnesses that Jesus calls upon to prove his identity as the Son of God. What witnesses does he call forth? What witnesses, if you think about it, this must be amazing, does he think confirms and proves his identity? And thirdly and lastly, we're going to look at the striking plot twist at the end of this courtroom drama, and see how Jesus turns the tables on his prosecutors and he charges them with sin. So first of all, the role of witnesses in the Bible. So before we look at the witnesses Jesus calls forward, I think it's important for us to to look at uh, what is the importance of a witness according to the Bible. Now the word witness has uh, a few different meanings narrowly it can mean an an eyewitness so when we talk of a witness we could just be meaning an eyewitness an eyewitness of course is one who sees something and then is able to testify or provide they themselves are proof in that they say hey I saw and I'm providing the testimony of what I saw on the basis that I saw so narrowly a witness could be an eyewitness but broadly speaking A witness is really just any proof or evidence whatsoever. Any proof or evidence is a witness. Those are synonymous terms, proof and evidence. So an eyewitness falls into the category of the broader uh, category of witness, but anything can be a witness. Could it be an inanimate object? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 31. And this is a typical passage in the Old Testament regarding witness Genesis 31 verse 44 Genesis 31 verse 44 and the context is Jacob and Laban are having some problems they're having some tension and Jacob is running away from Laban now with his family He's worked for him for a very long time. He wants to get away. Laban's not happy about that. He pursues him, and there's a lot of tension, but they finally decide we're going to part ways. But we're going to part ways, and we're going to do something before we part ways. Verse 44. This is Laban speaking. So now come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Then Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Now Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Both words mean heap of witness. They're just two different languages. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore it was named Galeed and Mizpah, for he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from the other. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap and behold the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm. And you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. So in other words, this heap of stones that they build is proof or evidence of a covenant that they made with one another. And it's proof not only for them to see, but for God to see as well. it's not only, hey, I built this thing and so if you ever forget about this covenant thing that we made, I can just point to this thing and say, you remember when we made this together? But it's not only for Laban and Jacob and their people to see, but also for God. God himself witnesses what happened. God himself takes that into consideration and he watches. And not only is it there simply to remind them of the covenant, but it's there also to condemn them or witness against them if they violate the covenant. So it's not just a reminder. It's actually proof and evidence against them if they violate that covenant they made with one another. And so I'd like to make this point, brothers and sisters, and that is that the concept of witness in the Bible, and this is typical, is a legal concept. How many of you think uh, the Bible is concerned with legal things, right? Or do you think, ah, legal, that's so, that's so technical and, you know, that's so unspiritual. Do you, have, you ever get those ideas? Legalistic. Yeah, we, we use the word legalistic, right? Well, what does that mean? But no, if you think, of, if you think the word legal, we know legalism is wrong, but if you then think anything legal is wrong, you've missed it. The Bible is very much concerned with legal things. This is very important, and here's why. Because the Bible is all about truth. And that's what one thing we talked about uh, last week. Why is it that Jesus and the leaders of Israel, when they clash, it looks like a courtroom? Why are they calling forth witnesses, charges, charging one another, and defending one another, and accusing one another... Because it's really about objective truth. And the Bible is about truth. And therefore there's a necessity for evidence and proof in order to convince people of what the truth is and to condemn you if you violate that truth. So the concept of witnesses is legal and it's essential to a book of truth and to a religion of truth and to a God of truth. And I'd like to make this perfectly clear, brothers and sisters, but God is a legal God. He is a God of law. He is a God of truth. And therefore, he is a God of witness. He's a God of evidence. He's a God who calls us, and you can see this throughout the Bible, make your case, or I have this against you. I have witnesses against you. He doesn't just uh, accuse without actually making a case. He's got his case. And he calls us to consider it. Exodus chapter 20. Here's another important verse regarding witness. Mm -mm. This is the Ten Commandments. You should know where we're going with this. Mm -mm. Exodus 20 verse 16. One of the Ten Commandments is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is, a ten, this is one of the Ten Commandments. The classic Old Testament commentary by Keel and Delich writes this about this verse. From this it is evident that not only is lying prohibited, but false and unfounded evidence in general. Not only evidence before a judge, but false evidence of every kind. You're not to bear false witness against your neighbor. You're not to say, I saw something or I know something when it's not true. Because God is a God of truth. And this is why this is in the Ten Commandments. This is why God actually spoke this with his own voice from Mount Sinai. Because he's concerned with truth. He's concerned with what we say. He's concerned that we don't spread lies and falsehoods. God is concerned about reality and he wants us to live in reality and not in lies. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 19, uh, chapter 6 you'll remember in that chapter, there are six things the Lord hates, yea, seven that he abominates, right? And there's seven things that that proverb lists that God absolutely hates. And you know what's interesting? Two of the seven is false witness. Two of the seven. There are seven things God absolutely hates and two of those is lying and bearing false witness. I don't think anything else is repeated twice. That's how serious truth is to God. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. And in this chapter, we find a very important principle that's repeated in different places in the law. It's quoted in the New Testament several times. Deuteronomy 17 verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Now, this is in the law. So you're seeing now God's concern for truth and evidence very clearly here. People's lives are at stake when it comes to truth. Amen. People's souls are at stake when it comes to truth. Amen. And here we have a principle. I don't believe we're supposed to take this passage in a wooden manner. We're not to take it woodenly. I have two or three witnesses, therefore it must be true, whatever is being said. Right? We have seen in history, you can get two or three liars together, right? And they don't, just because there's two or three numerically doesn't mean their case is solid. But rather, this is a principle. It's simply a principle that's saying, If you're going to condemn somebody or if you're going to establish something as true, you've got to build a case. And it's got to be a sound case. You don't just believe stuff unless you have good reason to believe it. So it's a principle and it's an awesome principle. I think this is one of my favorite principles in the law because it's showing us that God is a God of truth and he requires evidence. You got to make a case. It's got to be a good one. So it's just simply a command, don't cut corners here when it comes to investigating and finding out what is actually true. I wish more people would take this principle seriously in this world when it comes to religion, right? On the testimony of two or three witnesses, the principle is you've got to make sure you know what you're talking about. You've got to investigate. You don't just believe in a religion because you were raised in it, right? Right? That's only one evidence. That's only one witness. That's your parents. They tell you what you should believe. And so you're raised in, and you believe it. Of course, you're a kid. But as you get older, then you've got to think, well, you know, a lot of people's parents tell them to believe stuff. And I don't know if that's really a sound case. I mean, the case needs to be a little bit stronger. Mom and Dad, can you give me some reasons why we believe this as a family? Are they good reasons? Do they hold the te- stand up to the test of scrutiny? It's sad that more people don't do that. And as Christians, we proclaim that if you investigate Christianity, if you scrutinize its claims, you're going to find there's a case that is stronger than any other case. This is why we become Christians, because it's true. We're not just wanting it to be true. We're not just kind of hoping it's true. But we believe it's true because of these witnesses. Amen? So it's serious stuff. Look at verse 7, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge evil from your midst. So what he's saying is witnessing is so profoundly important that if you're going to bring a charge against somebody that they're to die, the witnesses will be the first to put that person to death. That means God's saying it lays upon, it all is upon the witnesses, Right? Two chapters over, Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Here's what God does with false witnesses. Verse 15 of chapter 19. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in the office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. The rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus shall you not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So God's saying, you investigate thoroughly, and if this guy's found out to be lying, although well, whatever he wanted to happen to this guy has to happen to him, and you don't pity him, you purge that evil out of the people, because that's evil. And so we see how serious this is to God. There are so many other places in the Old Testament we could go to talk about the role of witnesses. I think of Deuteronomy 32, where God teaches Moses a song. And he says, this song, you will, you will teach it to the people of Israel that they may remember it for generations that the song may be a witness against them. And in this song, Moses, God gives to Moses a prophecy of the entire history of Israel. So I'm just basically going to prophesy all the things that's going to happen to this people. You teach it to them so they remember it. And when it all happens in the future, that song will be a witness. Prophecy is a witness of the truth of God. Isaiah 43, God says that the people of Israel themselves, the nation themselves is a witness that there is no other god but God, but Yahweh. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. So there's a body of people and their tradition and their history that's been passed down from time immemorial testifies of the history and the acts of God, and that he alone is God. The people of Israel themselves are a witness. The role of witnesses is crucial in the New Testament. Can you just think of all the verses that jump out at you when you think of the New Testament? For example, Luke 24 at the end. You are my witnesses, Jesus says to his apostles. He's sending them forth to witness into all the world of what they saw, right? His resurrection, his teachings, his death, resurrection, and all those things. So we see in the book of Acts throughout the apostles testifying as witnesses and martyrs, which also that word martyr means witness of the truth. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, Jesus himself is called the faithful witness. Jesus himself is a witness, a proof, an evidence of who God is. And he's faithful, he's not a false witness. The gospels themselves, the actual books are witnesses or proofs or evidences of Jesus. And turn with me to, to the Gospel of John once again, chapter 19. And we see that John wrote this book as a proof and as an evidence, as a testimony to what he saw. John 19, verse 35. Here's the characteristic of this book. John nineteen thirty-five. John is there at the cross, an eyewitness. He sees them pierce Jesus' side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. So John is writing this as a witness. So once again, God is a God of truth, and brothers and sisters and friends, and we proclaim this to the world, he has mounted a case complete with evidence. That's that's what we are saying. That's what God is saying. I call you to believe, but I don't just command you to believe. Christianity is not just a bunch of radical claims without any evidence, and you're just supposed to believe gullibly. God calls us to believe, and he's mounted his case full of evidence, and he's subpoenaed every person. He's saying, you're due in court. You need to come to court. If you don't come, you're in big trouble. You need to come and you need to look at this, and you need to believe. And as Christians, we proclaim that the case is incontestable. You come. You come without lying. You come without deceit. You come in honesty. You deal with the facts honestly, and you'll find the case to be incontestable. As we'll see, the case is so strong, brothers and sisters, that there's an insidious reason why people reject it. My second section this morning. The witnesses Jesus calls upon to prove his identity as the Son of God. So in the light of the importance of witnesses in the Bible, it should come as no surprise to us that Jesus calls forth witnesses to prove his claims, right? It's not surprising. And he calls forth three powerful, incontestable, timeless witnesses. Now in verse 30, please turn there again to John 5 verse uh, 30. Jesus gives us a summary of all that he said uh, in the preceding verses. These are his claims. I do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Summarizing what he has said. And then in verse 31, Jesus moves to substantiate these claims. Now look at verse 31 with me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now what is Jesus saying? Is he saying, I'm a liar? You know, if I'm testifying, don't believe because it's not true. That's not what he's saying at all. Of course. What he's saying is if I alone am testifying about myself, if it's just me, you know, if it's just me standing here making these claims and there's no evidence and no, you know, corroboration, there's no other witnesses that that can back up my claims, if it's really just me proclaiming this, it's false, don't believe me. Carson says, if the burden of evidence to support the tremendous claims he has been making exclusively depends on his own self-attestation. His witness must be false. So the point here is, if I alone testify myself, my testimony is not true, verse 32, but there is another. So here's his point. He says, no, it's not just me saying this. I can call forth witnesses and establish who I am. This is Jesus pointing out that principle and that In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall any matter be established. It's got to be a solid case. And he's saying, I have a case. I am not alone, he says in verse 32. There's another who testifies of me. And I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Now, who is this other? Many people think it's the father that Jesus is referring to here. When he says, there's another that testifies of me. But I believe Jesus is referring to John the Baptist. For in verse 33, he immediately moves to his first witness. And that is John the Baptist. So enter witness number one onto the stand. Jesus is saying, if you want evidence that I am who I say I am, let's start here with John the Baptist. How is John a witness of Jesus? Is it really that solid of a witness? Does, what about for you as Christians in the 21st century? Does John the Baptist's witness hold weight for you, or is that just witness in the first century? You know, maybe that was meaningful for them. I think as Christians, we ought to see, and we should, if we we're knowledgeable about this, that John the Baptist is a timeless witness. Of Jesus Christ. John, of course, was a contemporary of Jesus. He appeared on the public scene in Israel just before Jesus appeared publicly in Israel. And he was recognized by that nation as somebody exceptional. That's not a disputed fact. That's not a Christian claim. There was a man named John who was baptizing in the wilderness of Israel, and he was wildly popular. He was seen as exceptional. He was understood to be an important person. It was not only the crowds that went out to John, but also the leadership of Israel went out to John. Verse 33, Jesus points this out. You sent to him. You knew he was somebody. If you you thought he was nobody, you wouldn't have sent anybody to inquire of him. He was somebody. He was recognized to be a holy and a righteous man. He looked like Elijah out in the wilderness. He was a Nazarite. And it wasn't just his appearance that was so um, shocking to people, although that was shocking. Wow, there's a guy out in the wilderness dressed like Elijah, eating locusts and honey, not living like anybody else. Of course, you could be a lunatic and do that, right? So that doesn't itself prove that John's anybody. But it wasn't just that he was Elijah, it wasn't just that he was in the wilderness although those are significant attributes of John, but his boldness. There he is preaching about God in the wilderness, preaching about the truth in the wilderness, and being so bold, challenging even Herod, challenging the soldiers, challenging the leadership of Israel, calling them broods of vipers, right? Not being afraid of the consequences, even though that ultimately did end, up, end him up in jail and ultimately uh, lo- losing his life. So his boldness, it was prophetic. And not only his boldness, but his message also. He was calling people to repent. He was calling them to return to God and to honor the law. This was not somebody preaching wacky things, brothers and sisters, right? This was somebody upholding the law of God. It's an interesting proof of John the Baptist's popularity and his impact that there exists today a religion called Mandaism. Even today, there's only about maybe under 10,000 of them left in the world, mostly in the Iraq area. A religion called Mandaism, which is actually 2,000 years old. We talked about the Samaritan religion a few weeks ago, right? That's a religion that's lasted for a long time. Here's another one. It's about 2,000 years old, and these guys revere... John the Baptist. He's like their prophet, John the Baptist. And interestingly enough, they reject Jesus. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) That shows you John's popularity and impact. There's a religious cult that started following this man. You know, you got a leader like John the Baptist who then is martyred, you got a cult. And they've lasted for 2,000 years in very small numbers, and they reject Jesus. And it's interesting; they baptize themselves repeatedly. That's like the <coughs> essence of their religion is baptism. And it's not once; it's all the time, multiple times a day. They soak themselves; they're always wet. <laughs> and they really think that by getting wet and soaking themselves and being baptized, they're cleansing themselves of their sins. They've totally missed the point of John the Baptist. That's why they didn't. That's why they're so small and dead and missing the po- waterlogged. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. It's a false cult but it shows his popularity. Now, why is John so popular and significant to everybody? Though he did no miracle, the scriptures tell us he did no miracle, right? He wasn't out there healing anybody. But his life was miraculous. You remember that John was a miracle baby, right? So John was born, and everybody knew that, to to parents who were well past the age of giving birth to children, right? So people knew, and you can see that in Luke chapter 1. John was not an isolated figure in the corner. Even his the circumstances of his birth, it says in Luke 1, people were talking about this all over Jerusalem. People were talking about, what the, what is this child going to be like? Because clearly God gave brought him into this world, and even his father went mute for a while and had a vision and then could speak at his at his uh, naming. Who is this child? He was a miracle baby. Like many Old Testament figures who were born through miracles. And not only was the circumstances surrounding his birth miraculous, but his preaching, his presence, was recognized, or it was speaking loudly, that he was fulfilling prophecy. Right? A voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. And here John is, this miracle baby. Everyone's interested in what's going to happen with this guy. He's in the wilderness. He's crying out. He's saying he's preparing the way of the Lord, right? And John's testimony was one's coming after me, right? Prepare his way. So he was a fulfillment of Isaiah 40. God was fulfilling prophecy. Malachi says, I'm going to send my messenger before him. I'm going to send Elijah before the Lord comes. And here's a guy that looks like Elijah. It's John. It's not some lunatic. It's that miracle baby. Preaching the law boldly in the wilderness. That's why he got so much attention. So it's no wonder that they sent to him. Turn with me to John chapter 1 and we'll look at John's testimony. They sent to John. John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. And John the apostle writes this as if it's common knowledge. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And what is he in verse 7? He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Verse 15, John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Verse 19, this is the testimony or the witness of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? See, they knew he was somebody. And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, No, I'm not. And I believe he means Elijah reincarnated. Are you the prophet that Moses says was going to come into the world like himself? No. Then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This was his testimony. I am the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40. I am preparing the way of the Lord. I am the forerunner to the Messiah. And brothers and sisters, John the Baptist's witness is not just for them in the first century. It's a timeless witness because when you understand history and you understand prophecy and you're asking who is the Messiah that this Bible prophesies of, then you also must inquire into the forerunner. And we have in history a forerunner who testified of Jesus. And so his testimony is for us as well. And if you look at verse 34 of chapter 5 in John, Jesus says, "...the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved." What Jesus is saying is this is for your sake. It's not for mine. I knew I was I knew I was the Messiah and I knew I am the Messiah. I didn't need John to tell me who I was. You need John to tell me to tell you who I am. So Jesus is saying, I don't depend my identity and who I know who I am. I don't need this testimony you do. And God brings us light verse 35. God brings us light when we're in darkness. God brings us truth when, there, when we are in falsehood so that we can believe and be saved. And the question is we either believe or we shut our eyes against the light that God gives us. And John was sent into the world as a light. Let's look at the second witness, verse 36. The second witness that Christ calls forth are his own works, the works of Christ. If John the Baptist's witness is weighty, and it is, much more is this second witness to Christ. Verse 36 says this, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works of which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. The NIV has it in the singular the work that I have been given, but it is in the plural in the Greek. So we're to understand Jesus to be thinking of many things. The, the works that God has given me testify of me. Now, what are these works? Some would limit them to miracles that basically... What Jesus is referring to is his miraculous works. And they're just simply supernatural evidences that he is divine, supernatural evidences that he's exceptional. But I believe Jesus is referring to something far broader than just his miracles. And we're to take this, brothers and sisters, in its widest possible sense, all the works Jesus was shown by the Father to do. That would include his miracles. That would include his speaking. That would include his giving life to the dead. That would include his judging the world and so forth. All the works. Turn with me back to chapter 4, verse 34. And Jesus is talking about those same works. And notice the similar language. 4.34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish His work. And in the context, this is Jesus seeking and saving those who are lost. This is Him reaching out to those Samaritans, right? And bringing Him in. That's part of the works of the Father that Jesus was doing. Chapter 5, verse 20. We read this last week. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Well, in the context here, uh, what is the greater works? Well, the lesser works was him healing this man at the pool of Bethesda. That's part of his work that the Father gave. But Jesus is saying there's greater works that God is going to show me that I'm going to do. Raising the dead, judging the world, giving life to those who are dead. Chapter 14, verse 10. Another important verse regarding works. Chapter 14, verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. That sounds like what Jesus says. I can do nothing of my own initiative, right? Now he's saying, I don't even speak of my own initiative or from myself. But the Father abiding in me does his works. And so we're to understand the works of Christ to include also his words. And so when Jesus says, I call forth the witness of my works, he's referring to his miracles, he's referring to his words, he's referring to him seeking and saving the lost. And I'll turn us to one more passage in John chapter 17, verse 4. And here we come to the cream of the crop the culmination of his works. 17 verse 4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Here, Jesus has said he's accomplished the work. He speaks past tense, even though, as we know, he's right about to do the greatest work that he was sent to do. And so we're to understand that Jesus is speaking proleptically. That's a word that means it hasn't happened yet, but it's so certain he's saying it as if it was past. I've finished the work. Even though he's right at the door of finishing that work. The greatest of all works that the Father has given him to do lies before him, which is the cross that he would bear In obedience to the Father, in fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus died for us. Amen? That was a work that the Father gave him to do. And this work brings God glory like no other work that Jesus could have done. If all we had seen was the miracles of Jesus that he had performed, we would not know the glory of the Father if he had not gone all the way and finished the work. That God gave him to do. Because on the cross when Jesus died. There by perfectly representing the Father. He represented him before us. And revealed the Father's righteousness to us. By his actions in going to the cross. He gave witness that God is a just God. Is there any other way, Father. That Dale could be forgiven. Or that Eli could be forgiven. Or that Lori could be forgiven. Is there any other way? Can't you forgive him any other way? Silence. There is no other way than for Jesus himself to take the cup of wrath and suffering and to bear our sins so that we can be saved. Because he proclaims at the cross, God is just. God is inflexibly just. And his standard is perfection, righteous perfection, perfect love. Okay, well, maybe you can't just forgive them, but... Maybe, maybe they don't need to be forgiven. Maybe the standard's not so high. Maybe we can lower the standard a little bit and they'll all pass and then we don't need to do any atonement. No. Nope. It's perfection. And the whole world is guilty before God, you and I. Right? And at the cross, not only does Jesus reveal the glory of the Father's righteousness and His justice, but also the glory of the Father's love in revealing to us God's love for wicked sinners, just like you and I. Because he didn't have to do that, right? There was no need for God to atone for our sins by sending his beloved Son into the world to be a propitiation for our sins. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The cross reveals his amazing love. And Jesus on the cross, when it was all over, cried out, It is finished or accomplished, same word. I finished that work of atonement which you have gave me to do. I don't believe all of Jesus' works were finished when he cried, It is finished, but the work of atonement, propitiation was finished, because there's another great work Jesus had to do. What was that work? Do you remember? Chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple and I will build it again. And chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, no one takes my life. I lay it down and I take it up again. I have this commandment from the Father and that's why he loves me. Jesus raised from the dead and this also is his work. And I think one of his greatest works that witnesses and testifies of who he is amen so all of his works brothers and sisters testify of who he is incontestably actually he fulfills prophecy he works miracles his teaching honors the law he gathers the lost sheep he dies to save us he rises from the dead he ascends into heaven he sits down at the right hand of the father can anything else proclaim more clearly and loudly who he is and show us his glory Behold a greater light the sun itself arise Jesus bright son of righteousness salutes our wondering eyes You see him and you see the Father and you see that all is light The third witness and the last witness this morning that we'll consider is the witness of the scriptures. Now someone, let's turn back to John 5, might stop me and say, hold on a second, Eli, I think you're skipping something here. What about the witness of the Father, verse 37? Now it's true that Jesus says here in verse 37, the Father who sent me, he has testified of me, or he witnesses of me. But my question this morning to you is, what is the Father's witness? What is the Father's testimony? When Jesus says, my Father testifies, what is this he's thinking of? Now some think, and perhaps you do or you know people who do, they think that the witness of the Father to Christ is the voice of the Father that was, that was audibly heard at Jesus' baptism. You remember, Jesus was baptized by John and God audibly spoke and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so, some think that what Jesus is referring to here in verse 37 is just that witness. God the Father spoke of His Son. But, that event is not recorded in the Gospel of John, the event of the Father speaking about His Son at the baptism, nor was everyone there when that happened. And if that is the case, that what Jesus is speaking about is the voice of God at his baptism, how do we explain the rest of verse 37, which says, You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. It seems like if Jesus was referring to the voice of God, the Father, at the baptism, he'd be able to say, You heard his voice, right? He said, I am his son. But Jesus says, right after saying, The Father testifies of me, he then accuses them of saying, You've never heard the Father. He's testified of me and you've not heard him. So I think we must rule out the voice at the baptism. And if it's not the voice at the baptism of Jesus, then what is it? When has the Father testified of the Son in such a way that the leaders of Israel did not hear? And the answer, of course, is well, through many things. The Father, of course, testified of the Son through John the Baptist, through the works of Jesus, but these have already been called as witnesses. And I believe that what Jesus is speaking of here is explained in the following few verses. He provides us the answer in verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you. And it's because you don't have his word abiding in you that you don't believe the one whom he has sent. And I believe verse 39 to verse 47 is an expansion of this. And that's why I say the third witness is the scriptures. I believe the Father has testified of his Son through them. And the Jews have not heard. Jesus is, in a, is essentially saying, the Father has testified and you have not heard it. You do not know him, therefore you do not know me J. Campbell Morgan says he thus charged them with ignorance of God. And the amazing thing is he says you are ignorant of God and you're ignorant of God because you're ignorant of the very thing that you claim not to be ignorant of and that's the scriptures. The Jews searched the scriptures diligently. They read the scriptures diligently. They continue to do that. The, the, The heart and soul of Judaism today is study of the Torah. And they believe that by studying the scriptures that they have eternal life. Rabbi Hillel in Jesus' day taught that the more one studies the Torah, the more life he has. And if he has nothing else but study of the Torah, he achieves the world to come. And so they searched the scriptures thinking that the scriptures themselves gave life and they fundamentally missed the whole point of the scriptures, which is what? Verse 39 and verse 46. These testify of me. They are a witness of me. And in verse 46, Moses wrote about me. Peter in Acts chapter 10, verse 43 says, to him all the prophets bear witness. Paul in 2 Timothy 3.15 says you've known Timothy from a child the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what the scriptures are doing. Marcus Dodds comments the true function of scripture is expressed in the words they testify about me. They do not give life as the Jews thought they lead to the life giver. I study the scriptures a lot and I can testify they don't give life, okay? Sometimes I'm, some of my driest times, soul-numbing, deadness times is when I'm reading the Bible. But when the Bible leads me to Christ... When I'm led through them. And make no mistake, Jesus is not disparaging the scriptures in any way. You cannot know him apart from the scriptures. They lead to him. He's actually honoring them here. He's actually pointing to them here. He's saying, you need to reevaluate how you understand them here, right? So no, there's no disparagement of scripture whatsoever. But they are to lead you to the life giver, which is Jesus, who is the revelation of the Father. It's not those who hear the law who are justified before God. Why did Paul say that? Because they thought, if I just learn and study and hear, this makes me different than everyone else. This sets me in a class apart from all those sinners. Because at least I care to learn, right? I might not keep it like everybody else, but at least I give time to learning. But the doers of the law who are justified, of course, no one does the law, but we are only given life through him. And how do the scriptures testify of Christ? Well, as we've seen, through prophecy, that's true. But even more than that, more penetratingly than prophecy, which is important, by the fact that the scriptures are a revelation of God as both righteous and gracious. Would you agree that the Old Testament scriptures reveal God as righteous and just? That's what the scriptures are all about. The law of Moses proclaims the standard that God requires in order to have a right relationship to him. And just to illustrate all that, it gives us a tabernacle with lots of sacrifices and rules and regulations showing how tight and strict God is if anyone is to approach him. You have to be totally pure to approach God because he is totally pure. And the only way to be pure is through sacrifice. And the law requires all or nothing perfection. So says the scriptures. The prophets are always pointing the people back to the law. You guys think you're right with God and you're not. You think you're good, but you're not. Because the law condemns you. And so the scriptures show God's righteousness and they also show God's gracious. Who cannot fail to see in the scriptures that God by his deeds... And by his prophecies and promises, reveals his graciousness towards sinners. So had the Jews truly understood and received the revelation of God and of his word, they would have received the culmination of that word, who is Jesus. Amen? If they had got the scriptures, they would have gotten him. And failure to receive Jesus is really just an indication of failure to receive God as he's revealed in the scriptures. So here are the three timeless witnesses that Jesus calls forth. John the Baptist, his contemporary, his own works that he did, and the scriptures, both in their prophecies and in what they reveal. And I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but that's why I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus because of John the Baptist and the history that happened in the first century. I believe in Jesus because of his works, because I believe that he did those things that he did. And he taught what he taught, and he died for my sins, and he rose from the dead. And this convinces me that Jesus is the Messiah. There's so much, of course, to to talk about and to say here, but I'm just saying in a nutshell, this is it. And furthermore, I believe in Jesus because of the scriptures, because Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah, and he as well came in perfect alignment with the revelation of God as he is in scripture. He spoke the words and the truth of God. Thus, I believe in the 21st century. Finally, this morning as I finish, I'd like us to consider the striking plot twist They had put Jesus on trial. They were accusing him of sin. They had Jesus on the defense. And then all of a sudden, Jesus turns the tables and he gives them a damning indictment. What he says to them could not be more scathing. He couldn't say anything more scathing to them than what he does. Imagine Jesus on the, on the stand, he's in the witness box, he's defending himself, and then all of a sudden he stands up and begins charging his prosecution with sin. And you get an idea of what's going on here. Now let's see what the charges are. Verse 40, you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So he charges them with unwillingness. Verse 42, I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. He accuses them of not loving God. Verse 43, I've come in my Father's name and you don't receive me. Precisely for that reason, because I come in the name of the Father, because I come in the will of the Father, because I resemble the Father, you reject me. But you will accept another if he comes in his own name. You will receive charlatans. He accuses them of that. And verse 44, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? So you're glory seekers. You seek glory from men. You don't care about God's approbation. You only care about the approbation of men. Verse 46 and 47, Here's a biting one. You don't believe Moses. If you had believed Moses, you would have believed me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So he accuses them of these things. Now imagine from their perspective how offensive that would be. No charges, friends, could be more serious than this. And I'd like to make this perfectly clear. Jesus is telling us in no uncertain terms that the reason why people do not believe in him is ultimately not because they are uninformed or stupid, or deprived, but because they are resistant, proud, they do not love God, they are unwilling. And that unwillingness to come to the truth is so powerful that even with the scriptures before them and all the study that they've put into the scriptures before them and even with John the Baptist before them, And even with Jesus Christ himself before them and all of his works that he's done, they still will not believe. Isn't that incredible? Even with all of that, which is why Jesus says in verse 19 of chapter 3, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men loved darkness more than light because their deeds were evil. And I'd like to ask you, do you think it's any different today? Do you think it's any different today? Man, if we only had a John the Baptist-like person who would show up today, man, things would be different, right? If only someone like with a miraculous birth, and he came fulfilling prophecy, and he was bold as a lion, you know, and he preached the gospel fearlessly, man, then there'd be a difference. You think that? Oh, man, if Jesus were here... <laughs> If he were here doing miracles and teaching clearly that he was of the Father and Man, if you you know, if it all happened in our day, boy, things would be different. No. Things would not be different. Because as Paul says in Romans eight, verse seven, the fleshly mind is enmity against God. It will not submit itself to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. Remember that verse? The fleshly mind will not and cannot submit itself to the truth of God and his righteousness. And I'd like to offer an explanation of that verse. I believe the fleshly mind is a mind that is vainly puffed up. A mind that thinks highly of man. A mind that thinks highly of man's wisdom Man's accomplishments, man's ability, and man's righteousness. And such a mind will not receive the truth, but hates the truth. And as long as a person has a fleshly mind, they cannot receive the truth of God. Only when a mind is humbled, when a mind sees the idiocy of human wisdom... When a mind sees the vanity of human accomplishments, when a mind sees the the impotence of human ability, and when a mind sees the filthy rags of human righteousness, will it even be able and willing to embrace Christ? Do you believe that? Are you impressed with man's wisdom? Are you impressed with man's accomplishments and what man can do? Isn't that what the non-believing world is all about? Isn't that what the media is all about? Look at the great things we can accomplish together. We can do so much. We can do anything, basically, right? And look how good everybody, the whole world is basically good, right? Everybody is good. Everybody is righteous. Only a few people are bad. Human beings are essentially good, essentially accomplished, essentially able, essentially wise. And as long as you have that mindset, you cannot receive and submit to the righteousness of God. The Bible tells us God gave us the law in order to kill us and humble us and lead us to Christ that we might be justified through faith. And until a person has been killed, they won't accept Christ. The Jews hoped that Moses would advocate for them. They actually believed. You know how Moses in his earthly life advocated for Israel all the time, right? God was going to wipe them out, and Moses stood in the breach and said, no, don't do it, God, they're your people. So the Jews thought in the the judgment, Moses would advocate. Moses would stand in the gap and say, don't do it, God. And Jesus here says, you hope in him, you hope in his law, you hope in his scripture, and you hope in his advocacy, he will accuse you. Because the law of Moses is meant to kill you. The law of Moses was meant to crush your human wisdom and your human ability and your, human, and your hope in human ability and hope in human accomplishments and your hope in human righteousness. That's what Moses is all about. You don't really know Moses at all. Because if you had known him, you would have known me. And the irony of it all is that Jesus is finally put to death by the leadership of Israel on the charges of violating the law. Right? They finally put Jesus, they they basically conclude Jesus is a blasphemer. And what do they say to Pilate in verse 7 of chapter 19? We have a law, and by our law, this man deserves death. They thought they were honoring the law by persecuting Jesus, when in fact they were doing the exact opposite by putting Jesus to death. The truth is, it is not. By our law, he ought to die. But rather, by our law, he ought to be honored because he's the one who's actually honoring it, right? By our law, we ought to die. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) And the irony of it all is that when man is at the zenith of his wisdom, then he has reached the nadir of his folly. When he thinks... He's in the right, he's in the wrong. When he thinks he has a case against God, the case is in God's favor against him. And this is seen so perfectly in the trial of Jesus, where the faithful witness is condemned to death by a bunch of false witnesses, it says in Scripture. A bunch of false witnesses on the charge of violating the law. The whole thing is backwards. And yet, brothers and sisters, against this backdrop and in this setting, the great love of God is seen so clearly in that Jesus is suffering at the hands of wicked sinners in order to atone for their wicked sins, even their folly, even their evil of crucifying him and putting him to death. Isn't that amazing? He's dying for them and he reveals his goodness. So in closing, there simply is no one as wonderful as God. Amen? And there is no stronger evidence that could be desired to demonstrate his wonders. I firmly believe that, and I hope you do as well. And if you're not convinced of it, then you're invited into the courtroom. Turn on your mind. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every matter be established. Are you not a Christian this morning? Is it because you've really stepped into the courtroom and you've really examined the evidence, or is it because you're just going along with maybe one witness, you know, your parents, or some article that you read online, or Richard Dawkins, or something like that, right? Each one of us is a juror that must cast a vote either for or against Jesus, and how we judge him determines how we will be judged. So investigate the case, believe in him, and lay hold on eternal life. Let's pray. Please stand with me. Father, we give you thanks which is insufficient for sending your Son into the world to die for our sins. I pray that you would hit us afresh this morning with this truth, that you sent your Son to die for our sins. And we thank you, Lord, because we did not deserve that. We also thank you, Lord, for mounting a case for giving us evidence, abundant, powerful, timeless evidence for all to see, to prove that Jesus is your Son and He is the Savior of the world. Father, for those who are not yet persuaded, I pray that this morning they would consider where they're at in life. And Lord, this would be the day that they take the steps in the direction of investigating the marvelous evidence in favor of your Son. And Lord, I pray that as we sing this last song, we would truly sing with hearts of thankfulness for your gift of righteousness through your Son and giving us a life that we did not deserve. Thank you.